Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to a special convention edition of the Arkansas AgCast for December 6th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we're at the 85th Annual Arkansas Farm Bureau Convention in Little Rock, and we have a variety of interviews with experts, speakers, and Arkansas Farm Bureau leaders and members on the most important issues facing agriculture in Arkansas. First, Arkansas Farm Bureau's Ken Moore talks to new Arkansas Farm Bureau President Rich Hillman about his election, issues facing Arkansas agriculture, and the legacy of his predecessor, Randy Veach. I'm Ken Moore in the 85th Annual Arkansas Farm Bureau Annual Convention has just come to a conclusion, and today uh, new officers were elected for the organization, and I'm speaking now with Rich Hillman, the new incoming Arkansas Farm Bureau president. Mr. Hillman, congratulations on your election as president of this great organization. What does this election mean to you? Ken, it, uh, it, it's very humbling. Uh, the responsibility of the president uh, is is such that that I'm I'm excited about Farm Bureau. Uh, I'm excited about our future. Uh, the farmers and ranchers of the state of Arkansas is vital to the state of Arkansas. Uh, we are the number one industry. Uh, we we have to be successful for our state to be successful. The farmers and ranchers of Arkansas have to be successful. So we have a lot of challenges before us, uh, but but with Farm Bureau's help, uh, with the leadership of of the state board, our great staff, and all of our membership out there, uh, there there's no doubt in my mind that we'll meet those challenges and we'll achieve. No question about that. Now, you've been serving as vice president under President Randy Veach for the past 11 years. You've been on the board longer than that. Thank you so much for your leadership, and it's just going to continue now. Just a quick word, though, of gratitude for the leadership of Mr. Veach as he uh, enters into a new phase now. For 11 years, uh, yes. Randy has, has uh, led Arkansas Farm Bureau and, and even done more than that. He's, he's led Arkansas agriculture, uh, traveling abroad to many other countries, going to American Farm Bureau meetings, uh, going to Washington, D.C., and making sure our congressional district uh, was informed. Uh, Randy has, has got great big shoes to fill, but, but uh, my deep appreciation is to him, and uh, uh, we will forever be grateful for his leadership, Arkansas Farm Bureau. What do you believe has kind of led you to this point in time? I mean, this is, in my mind, the greatest grassroots organization in this state, and, uh, and, it's, and what we're able to accomplish is because of the many farmers and ranchers that voluntarily give their time to protect our number one industry. You're exactly right, and um, it goes back a, a long time for me, uh, going back to, to Lone Oak County, and uh, my father uh, served on the county board and also served on the State Farm Bureau board, and he taught me uh, that, that it is a privilege to serve an organization that serves our, our uh, family farm so well. Uh, as I was growing up and got involved in Arkansas Farm Bureau on the county level and coming to the state conventions and officers and leaders, I noticed that Arkansas Farm Bureau makes a difference, a positive difference. And I wanted to be part of that and I continue to be part of that. Uh, we, we are making a positive difference on family farms and ranchers across the state. And as we uh, enter into 2020, we've just set policy for the new year. Uh, that's an important part, perhaps the most important part of this annual convention every year. What challenges face this organization and agriculture as we begin a new year, which, and by the way, will be a presidential election year in Washington, which could present its own challenges as well? You're right. Uh, the state board and our staff got our marching orders today. Uh, we have that policy in place and we will forward our national issues to American Farm Bureau in the next couple of weeks and then vote on it in Austin in, in January. Um, 
as far as our challenges, here in the state we have challenges. Uh, we're, we're going to fight for highways. Uh, so many challenges there. On the national stage, certainly trade. That is, that is a big issue. Um, we, we have to get our trade fixed. It is hurting Arkansas. It's hurting our nation. And uh, we will work and strive forward uh, to making trade better. Uh, we, we have to get those. USMCA, which is Canada-Mexico, we've got to get that done right away. Uh, we have a new new uh, trade deal with Japan, and then there's the, the monster in the back, China. Uh, we all have to work on that. Uh, American Farm Bureau level, I know that they are, uh, and our delegation, uh, our four congressmen, our two senators are all supporting us getting a deal cut and, and getting the right deal cut uh, that, that will help uh, Arkansas farmers and ranchers. Well, Mr. Hillman, congratulations on your election. We look forward to working with you and serving with you in the years to come. Absolutely, and I'm excited. I've been speaking with Rich Hillman, the new president of Arkansas Farm Bureau, as we conclude this annual convention of the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation on Arkansas AgCast. Next, Ken talks to Scott Vanderwall, Vice President of American Farm Bureau Federation and President of the South Dakota Farm Bureau, who was the keynote speaker during the Day 2 General Session at convention. I'm Ken Moore, again coming to you on this edition of Arkansas AgCast from Arkansas Farm Bureau's 85th Annual Convention in Little Rock. And... Uh, the convention is moving right along, and one of our very special guests, keynote speakers at this year's convention, is American Farm Bureau Vice President Scott Vanderwall. And uh, Scott hails from Volga, South Dakota, but he has been serving American Farm Bureau and the Farmers and Ranchers of Arkansas as Vice President for several years now under our President Zippy Duval. And it's great to have you in Arkansas, Scott. Thank you for being here uh, with us at our convention. Uh, well, we have just a few minutes. I know you're going to be addressing our uh, uh, farmers and ranchers here uh, at this afternoon's convention. Uh, let's look ahead to 2020. Well, let's look back, if you will, just briefly on 2019. We're about to come to the end of the year. It's been a rough year uh, as far as adopting policy issues uh, in Washington. Uh, from your perspective, uh, how successful have we been? And it leaves a lot of work to be done next year. Well, you're right, and, and Ken, it's a great honor to be here and, and meet the members of Arkansas Farm Bureau, and we've just thoroughly enjoyed it. It has been a rough year for everybody, just about everyone across the United States, and, and we've all had problems with too much water, uh, crop production issues of one kind or another, and, and uh, break-evens uh, that are possibly above the, the price of the commodities we're raising. But in Farm Bureau, you know, it's it's been a pretty successful year. Uh, since the Trump administration came into power, we've had a great great uh, relationship with them. Uh, Sonny Perdue, especially as Secretary of Ag, has really been a bright and shining star. And uh, President Duval's relationship with him is excellent. And, and I'd ha hate to think of what, what it would be like without him there uh, reminding the president every day of uh, what the things he does uh, have an effect on agriculture. But, uh, you know, the president has had a, a very strong anti-regulation or, or rolling back regulatory policy, which is uh, excellent. You know, we need some regulations out there uh, that are common sense, but we don't need too many. And he's taken care of some of that. Uh, the trade issues, uh, you know, we, we've had a little bit of a disagreement with him on that. But at the same time, most of our members have said just let him do his thing with China. Uh, he's the first president that's had the backbone to stand up to China and do what's needed to be done in regard to the uh, uh, st uh, stealing of intellectual property and things like that. So, you know, it's, it's a moving target. Uh, he's been good to us. He wouldn't have had to do the market facilitation program uh, because it's, uh, but, uh, you know, agriculture didn't ask for that fight and we're innocent victims in it and, and he recognizes that. And I was going to bring that up and I'm, I'm grateful that you mentioned that uh, the trade assistance, market facilitation, in light of the tariff conditions that farmers are having to deal with, uh, that's really helped keep many farmers and ranchers going uh, in light of this tariff war. Yeah, it really has. And obviously, that's not our first choice as far as the federal aid goes. But like I said, we didn't choose that war and didn't want to be part of it. But at the same time, 
um, it is appreciated, uh, especially by younger farmers that may not be real well capitalized, get, just getting started, or farmers that are in their 60s or maybe 70s that are tired of seeing their equity erode that might be think, uh, thinking about getting out of it. That might keep them in business for another couple of years, and we certainly don't want to see more family farms disappear. No question about that. We don't, and we're doing all we can, and American Farm Bureau is doing all it can to help you know, lobby for that assistance to keep our farmers and ranchers in business. Uh, looking ahead to 2020, it's an election year. There's uh, election year politics that will come into play in Congress. How do you see our being able to uh, you know, enact our policy initiatives in 2020 in light of all that? It's going to be difficult, frankly. Uh, the first thing we're pursuing is... Uh, uh, USMCA, hopefully getting that passed through Congress this year yet, but it's starting to look more doubtful all the time. But we're putting on a full court press on that. If that gets into 2020, it, it turns into what I call silly season. And uh, everybody's scared of their shadow. And when you take up issues like that where it's a, it's a little bit politically uh, perilous for some people, uh, they don't want to touch it. So that's what we're scared of there. Um, ag labor is another one that we're really going to be working hard on. Again, that's a, a third rail issue and people are afraid to talk about it when they're up for election within 12 months. So the, it's going to be a tough help, uh, row this, this coming year um, policy-wise, but we're going to keep at it. Broadband, uh, the expansion of uh, broadband internet access in rural communities, that's huge for us here in Arkansas. Uh, we did get some legislation passed that is encouraging these partnerships between uh, cooperatives in rural communities and their internet service providers. But uh, that's just critical and we've had a lot of discussion about that. How do you see that becoming a priority for us? Well, that's something that it already is a priority. Uh, we've recognized that broadband access is not a luxury anymore. It's an absolute necessity. If you want to be in business and be serious about it, no matter where you are, you have to have access to it. South Dakota is not unlike Arkansas. We've got very remote areas, uh, places where you can drive uh, 30, 40 miles to the nearest neighbor out in the western side of South Dakota. So same issues there. Yes. It's very important that we get that done. And the bill that was passed uh, uh, to improve the maps of the whole United States to know exactly where the areas that are underserved are is the first step in that, and then we'll be very involved in, in correcting those issues as we go forward. And I guess just from your perspective uh, as Vice President and uh, working with President Duvall, you know, this whole, and I'm just going to call it like it is, this whole impeachment proceeding that's going on in Congress right now, it seems like that's priority one for the House Democrats. How is that going to prevent uh, substantive legislation from being passed, not only just this month, if at all, before they recess for the new year, but uh, as we enter into the new Congress next year? How is that? Because I know if they don't get it done now, that's going to come right back up in about two months. Yeah, yeah, it is a huge distraction. And, you know, we're focusing on policy and what's what's best for our, our members and, and enacting the policy they put in place. Uh, but certainly it's, it's up to Congress to deal with the issues that they're dealing with, and, and it's up to the voters to hold them accountable for what they do. And uh, that's, that's very important. But as, as far as uh, things like USMCA, taking care of ag labor, those are things that are, are good for our country. And it's, it's really frustrating from our standpoint that we don't seem to have the statesmen anymore that do what's right no matter who gets the credit. Right now it's all about making sure that the guy across the aisle doesn't get any credit if he's got a a D or an R behind his name, and, and we need to get back to doing what's right for this country. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. We certainly do. Well, thank you so much for your representation uh, as Vice President of the American Farm Bureau Federation, and uh, again, welcome to Little Rock, Arkansas, and, and our fair state, and uh, Merry Christmas. Appreciate it. Well, it's been a great pleasure uh, getting to meet some of your members, and my wife, Michelle, was able to come along. and. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, helping out with the reception for President Veach last night was really a, a fantastic event, and he really deserved that. He's been an excellent president for everybody here in Arkansas Farm Bureau, and, and it's been a pleasure working with him over the years as well. But no question. I'm glad you brought that up, Scott, because I know he and uh, President Duvall are very, very good friends, like-minded leaders of this organization, and uh, we're going to miss having him in his leadership role, but he's not, as he said, he's still going to be active. He's just not going to be leading the organization. And I know you and, uh, and Randy have become good friends. That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, our values and family values are very similar, and it's been uh, great knowing them, and we look forward to seeing them again in the future. 
Been speaking with Scott Vanderwall, uh, American Farm Bureau Vice President, here at Arkansas Farm Bureau's 85th Annual Convention on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Ken also talked to Veronica Nye, economist for the American Farm Bureau, who led a workshop with convention attendees about trade issues in agriculture. I'm Ken Moore, and we're coming to you again today on this edition of AgCast from our Arkansas Farm Bureau Annual Convention in Little Rock, our 85th Annual Convention, and we are uh, in the process of uh, conducting some very special conferences today on a variety of ag policy issues, and one of those is trade. Uh, trade is, is, is a very, very important topic right now for all of agriculture across the United States, and I have the privilege of here just for the next few moments visiting with Veronica Nye. And Veronica is uh, a, an economist with the American Farm Bureau Federation in Washington. And uh, I might add that she is also very well-spoken on trade issues. And uh, we're going to be talking about trade. She just led a, a discussion and updating our farmers and ranchers here at our convention on the status of all of these important trade issues facing American agriculture right now. And Veronica, thank you for your time. Uh, the most important one for us right now, and who knows when it's going to be resolved uh, anytime soon, is China and the tariff war with China. Uh, it seems President Trump was, doesn't want to give in to the Chinese, and they don't want to give in to us, and so retaliatory tariffs continue to occur, and a lot of them are on ag products. So talk about how you see the future. As we approach 2020 with the political climate we're in, an election year for us, and everything going on in China, where do you think that will go over the next six months? Uh, thanks very much for having me. You know, you're right. China, depending on the year before the trade war, was $20 billion in exports, our number one or number two market. Uh, they've dropped down to importing only about 8 or $9 billion from the U.S. So, uh, you know, you're looking at over a 50% reduction this year, and they're forecasting the same for, for 2020. So um, certainly a, a big deal. Um, this, you know, the tariff war began last uh, spring, I guess, April of 2018, and has just gotten worse. Uh, now, at this point, we're looking at almost 100% of U.S. ag products have additional tariff on there. Um, the average tariff is about 25% in addition to the existing tariffs. So, um, you know, of course, that you've got some products that have much, much higher. Like U.S. pork has tariffs of over 70% going to the Chinese market. So um, both sides are, are pretty entrenched. Uh, the U.S. now has tariffs on two-thirds of China's imports to the U.S. Not just ag, but all imports of, from China into the U.S. are, are two-thirds of those are subject to additional tariff. Um, December 15th is the new deadline. Um, the U.S. has... Um, said that we were planning to impose tariffs on the rest of the Chinese imports. And this is uh, a lot of the things that consumers care a lot about. So up until now, a lot of the tariffs have been uh, on things that maybe you don't see as much, you know, inputs into production, things along that lines. This last third is consumer electronics. It's apparel. It's furniture. It's things that, um, you know, the average consumer might actually notice. Um, so that's that's been kind of the deadline that both the U.S. and China have been working towards is trying to avoid this December 15th uh, tariff deadline. Now, we've had some stops and starts and, and then some more stops and starts. Um, back in Oct mid-October, it looked like we were going to have a deal. Um, unfortunately, uh, that, that uh, phase one of the deal, um, while highly anticipated, we haven't seen the details on that. Um, and President Xi and President Trump haven't been able to find a, um, a time or a, a place in all of those important things to, to actually sign the agreement. So, um, you know, we're, we're coming up pretty, pretty quick on that December 15th deadline. Uh, you know, I think if you, if you see those tariffs go into effect, um, it really chills the, the negotiation. The, the Chinese don't want those tariffs to go into effect. And they would like to see some of the those existing tariffs rolled back. Um, the U.S. same would like to see uh, tariffs dropped uh, on ag products and, and everything else. Uh, we'd like to see some large purchases of U.S. ag products to try to um, 
alleviate some of the pain that's been felt these last couple of years. Uh, so there's a lot on the table, um, but um, the next couple of weeks will be really important to seeing if in six months we have um, you know, a bit of a ceasefire and we're, you know, we've agreed to, to, to continue to negotiate and to have some um, you know, positive outcomes, or if it's, hey, these, all of the tariffs that are gonna be applied have been applied and we're gonna wait this out until after the US election. So the next couple of weeks will certainly determine what the next six months look like. Wow, we can only hope that uh, you know, positive steps are taken and that uh, common sense, if you will, I, from the sidelines, it appears that the leaders of our two countries uh, it's just like, who's going to blink first? And, and President Trump is a man that doesn't want to, you know, admit defeat. Well, that's, I think that's certainly true. And, and what we've seen over the last 18 months is that President Xi also doesn't want to blink. And how China, the relationship between China and the U.S. is different from the relationship between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, or Japan, or the EU, is that the U.S. and Japan, the, excuse me, the U.S. and China are the world's two largest economies. These are the big boys fighting. Right. The, um, it's, and what that means is it's hard to do damage. So while it's been, you know, uh, the, the tariffs that China have put on have been important to U.S. agriculture, devastating, um, overall, U.S. exports uh, have been doing okay, right, uh, to the rest of the world. They've, we've made up for it. And the Chinese are finding products from other countries. Um, and while the, the Chinese would rather not have the tariffs on their products coming to the U.S., overall their exports this year are up to the world, up 6%. So it's difficult when the economies are as large as the Chinese and the U.S. economies are, it's hard you know, for a body blow to, to, to take either out. And that's kind of what we've been seeing is the two countries standing r right up next to each other against the ropes, hitting each other in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the ribs and the kidneys trying to, to do some damage. And it, it just doesn't seem like um, you know, that relationship, um, because of those, the size of those, of those boxers, if you will, that those body blows are gonna, are gonna do it for either side. Both economies are, are doing just fine even with the tariffs in, in place. You know, that's a little bit different than Canada and Mexico, which are heavily dependent on the U.S. for, for exports. It's different than um, Japan, who is really dependent on the U.S. Uh, for auto exports and auto parts. And, you know, they're willing to say, hey, we'll, we'll give you some lower ag tariffs if you promise not to put additional tariffs on autos. It's different than the EU, who, you know, have, we're trading different products. Um, so it's, it's a unique relationship and I think when you start really digging into the, the data and, and thinking about the, the whole economies of both countries, it becomes a little bit more evident why we haven't come to a quick resolution on this. Well, let's just transition here real quick then. And you mentioned Canada and Mexico and USMCA. We've been trying to renegotiate that deal for well over a year now, going on seems like about two years. Uh, Mexico is cool. That we're good with Mexico, and they know they need our imports, and we can trade with them. Canada's waiting for us, I believe, to ratify. But that's become a political football here domestically within our own Congress. Talk about how you see that playing out, again, in an election year uh, when President Trump is up for re-election, and uh, he's got a lot of opponents. Yeah, unfortunately, trade agreements have a long history of being uh, political footballs, and, and this is playing out in, in the, with USMCA as well. So um, the, the big important thing about USMCA that's different than China, that's different than Japan, um, all the other things that have been happening, is that the USMCA was negotiated under trade permission authority. So that means the U.S. Congress has to vote on it. They have to pass it. It can't be just an executive branch action. So um, at, at this point, the, the deal, as you said, has been uh, was signed a year ago. An agreement was reached a year ago. Um, the House Democrats have, have been negotiating with uh, USTR Lighthizer um, in Mexico, frankly, to try to alleviate some concerns they have with uh, trade with Mexico around uh, labor uh, regulation and, and enforcement, um, environmental uh, actions. Uh, there's four, like, 
issues, none of which are agriculture related, but okay. four, four issues that uh, kind of they've been negotiating on. You hear good progress. You hear, you know, good reports that uh, Speaker Pelosi says that uh, the USTR has been exceptional that as far as meeting with them, answering their questions, um, and being a negotiating partner. You hear positive things. Uh, the the Mexicans are in D.C. this week um, for negotiations. Okay. So that's, that's all very positive. But we do have a clock. Um, and uh, under Trade Permission Authority, uh, implementing legislation that, you know, the bill to, to get USMCA voted on can only be introduced when the House and the Senate are both in session. Okay. And we have a limited number of days until the end of 2019 where that's right. the case. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, you get into 2020, um, they, the election in November looms large. Um, there's other, a few other things that, <laughs> that are happening in D.C. that uh, are distracting. Um, so, you know, when you, you talk to folks, um, the votes seem to be there, um, both in the House and certainly on the Senate. Um, and folks appreciate the fundamentals of the agreement. Uh, but trying to, to get all of the political winds to blow in the same direction um, is, is, is the most challenging element at this point, and, you know, really has been for the last year. Yeah, yeah. And, again, there are those House in the House leadership that, again, from the sidelines, they don't want to give the president a victory. And so ratification seems to be a victory for him, and they don't want to give that to him in an election year. Yeah, you know, that's it's pretty common, um, unfortunately, for the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years that each party does this to, yeah. to each other. What um, and what I think is important that, that our members continue to do is to not let this be a political issue. We have to bring, say it over and over again until you're blue in the face, uh, call every week if, if, you, if you have to or if you have the time to say, this is important to our operation. We don't care who, what party you belong to. We need you to recognize this is important to to your constituents, and um, and then yes. make it so that the the issue can be voted on on the facts rather than on the politics. And if we can continue to make that point, um, I don't think anyone can argue with that. Ever most 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 folks who look at USMCA say, yeah, it's an improvement over NAFTA, and. Oh, by the way, NAFTA has, by and large, improved the economies of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico over its 25-year um, lifespan. So, if it's been, if it was pretty good before, and this improves it, and my constituents keep saying this is critical, uh, I think we can win the day on that. Uh, we have to make it an issue that um, makes it so that it's no longer voting against or for the president, but remind folks that it's against or for the agreement and your constituents. Excellent point. Excellent point. Just wrapping this up then, uh, Veronica, just as we approach a new year, and it is going to be an election year, and, and there's a lot of factors that impact market prices. The weather, this has been a very difficult year. 2019 was here in the Mid-South with the weather. We had a major flood earlier this year, as you probably know, and then we had a little bit of a miniature drought. It was difficult to get the crops out and in or I should say in and planted and then harvested, but we have some pretty good yields. But despite that, prices, you know, have been so, you know, up and down, uh, volatile, if you will. How do you see 2020 turning around for the ag economy and what are going to be the major drivers for improving crop prices if we can see some improvement there uh, and then for livestock? I mean, you'd certainly like to see some improvement in, in prices. Um, and as you mentioned, there's been so much volatility, and I think a lot of that is folks trading on um, the potential outcome of the U.S.-China situation. Because when when China is buying 60 to 65 percent of the world's exports of soybeans, not just from the U.S., but the world, mm -hmm. what happens there matters a lot and sends a lot of signals for, for planting decisions for prices. Um, you know, on, on the bean side, unfortunately, we still have a lot of stocks that, that we need to work through. Um, and not outside of the U.S., global stocks are very high. Um, and that's, so that's going to continue to put downward pressure on, um, 
on, on U.S. prices, global prices. Um, beyond beyond soybeans, still, you know, on the on the wheat side, I, I know we don't grow a lot of wheat in Arkansas, but global stocks are over fifty percent on wheat. It's hard for a single year's worth of production to change that. So um, you see that it that it's a it's a good um, example of what we see across a lot of the crops is that um, while we may have good or bad production years in the U.S., the rest of the world is fairly well, well bolstered on, on supply, and and so it makes it hard for uh, for that to have a our production to. Um, impact those prices dramatically. You know, on the livestock side of life, um, I think the, the the pork guys are going to continue to have a, a fairly uh, good trajectory. Um, I know we've talked a lot about China, but let's do it again. Uh, swine, fever. swine fever. When you're, you know, reports that China's losing 50% of their herd. And I'll remind folks that China's hog herd is four times that of the U.S. herd. It's gigantic. So when you think about what that means for global pork production, um, there's a lot of opportunity out there. Um, and so, you know, um, of course, the Chinese are importing more pork, but not everybody can afford the, the increased cost of, of imported product. So then they start saying, what about, uh, is there a bird we could eat? And uh, certainly poultry is a, is a good um is a good option for for folks and there's a lot have have been a lot of reports of growing interest and uh, potential for uh, for poultry in in china so um good good prospects and you know on on the beef side of life um they're going to continue to unfortunately benefit from the um the unfortunate of the of the feedstock guys um uh, we're seeing uh we haven't talked about Japan, but Japan, we've got this this new agreement with them that goes into effect January 1. Um, Japan's already the largest export destination for U.S. beef. Um, and if if their consumers have to pay 10% or get to pay 10% less for it because of decreased tariffs, you can only imagine they want to buy a little bit more. So, um, you know, you look at opportunities on, on the protein side, beef, pork, poultry, the whole trifecta there. Uh, for expanded opportunities in Japan there too. So a lot of positive movement uh, on, on the protein side on, uh, in the international markets. How about the rebounding from the devastating fire at the Tyson plant that affected the beef prices here earlier this year? Are we recovering from that now and our prices have prices recovered? Uh, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, it, um, I think there was some surprise at how long uh, or how little time it took for the market to, to sort of rebound after that, that devastation. Um, we'll continue to, to see some effects, but uh, it was a fairly short-lived uh, impact. Um, so uh, hopefully with, uh, with rebuilding and coming, coming back online, um, we'll see some more stabilization there. But it was, um, uh, yeah, I think caught a lot of people by surprise how, how short the, that um, impact tail actually was there. Well, Veronica, thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time here. We could talk for a lot longer, but let's just hope that 2020 is a good year for American agriculture, economically and otherwise, and we can get some of these trade deals resolved. Thank you for your time. Thank you, and I couldn't agree more. Let's, uh, you know, clear vision into 2020. I wish I had it, but let's let's hope that it's uh, it's a good year. And Merry Christmas to you. I and to you. Thank you. All right, we're speaking with Veronica Nye here at our Arkansas Farm Bureau Annual Convention on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Farm Bureau's Greg Patterson interviews Trent Dabbs, 2019 recipient of the Stanley E. Reed Leadership Award from the Arkansas Farm Bureau. The award was established to honor the memory of the late Farm Bureau President Stanley Reed and is awarded to an active member 36 to 45 years of age for outstanding leadership within their county Farm Bureau and community. This is Greg Patterson, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're talking with Trent Dabbs, and Trent, just moments ago, was honored with the Stanley E. Reed Leadership Award, which is one of Farm Bureau's top awards, and Trent, how's it feel? Um, I'm very excited. Uh, it, was a, it was a surprise that uh, I wasn't expecting, so it uh, uh, feels good to, to be uh, recognized for your, for your leadership and your service to Farm Bureau. What's your reaction when, you know, you're sitting there and you're paying attention to what's going on? Maybe maybe you were taking care of your two girls as well, and, you, and, and 
But then all of a sudden you hear your name. Well, I was sitting in the back. I, like I said, I wasn't expecting it and uh, had my coat off and had to jump up, put my coat on. And uh, actually, I didn't know my, my girls were going to be here. So uh, somebody else had called them and told them I was going to receive the award. And uh, my wife brought them out of school and brought them over from Stuttgart. So that, that was a surprise when I turned around and saw them running up to give me a hug. So very excited. Well, as you well know, Stanley Reed, one of the uh, ex-presidents of Farm Bureau was revered within this organization. Did you ever get to meet Stanley? I did. When I uh, first was asked to be a board member in Arkansas County, uh, Mr. Reed was president uh, of Arkansas Farm Bureau, so got to meet with him and talk to him at conventions and, and things like that, so uh, knew him a little bit, yes. Now, in terms of leadership, obviously this award covers a lot of ground. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, leadership opportunities that you have had within Farm Bureau? Well, I, the first thing I did was, like I said, the, the county board there in Arkansas County asked me if I'd be a board member, which was a big deal, you know, uh, not really knowing what that was, but uh, from then got to uh, be appointed to the uh, State Young Farm and Rancher Committee uh, by President Veach and, and ended up being vice chair and chair of that committee. Uh, so that that's kind of my path. Uh, I, I'm now currently serving as the Arkansas County President, so that's where I've uh, done my leadership uh, in Farm Bureau. Well, you've obviously given a lot of uh, volunteer hours to Farm Bureau. What, in, in your opinion, if you were talking to someone who was new to Farm Bureau, um, a young farmer, what would you tell them are some of the benefits of being a member of Farm Bureau? Well, one of the reasons I like being involved in this organization is it's, it's uh, handles all of agriculture. It's not just specific to row crops or livestock or, or things like that. It, it involves all of agriculture. We can all come together as an industry as a whole and try to make changes for the better for what we need to do. Now, the Dabbs family is well known in East Arkansas. You come from, I guess, generations of row crop farmers. You and I were talking earlier, earlier about one of my first interviews was with your great uncle, Babe. And, and he loved his coon dogs, I think, more than farming. But tell us a little bit about your farm and what generation farmer you are and, and what you're growing and doing. Yeah, so I'm the, I'm the fourth generation uh, to farm that farm. Uh, right now, currently, I'm in a partnership with my dad and my stepmom. Uh, we farm roughly 3,000 acres in Arkansas County, just south of Stuttgart, basically in two different, two different farms, about 1,500 acres each. Uh, probably about 95% of it's family land that, that's been passed down. So uh, all row crop things, uh, probably, you know, depends year to year on our rotation. We're about 1,000 acres of corn, a little over 1,200 of beans, and the balance usually in corn, somewhere between 700-800 acres. As you look at, at farming and into the future, you are one of those, you're a leader in Farm Bureau, yet at the same time, you still have a lot of time in front of you uh, with Farm Bureau. What do you see are some of the critical issues that are facing farmers of your age as they come up? Well, just I think one of the main things, besides the obvious things that we're dealing with now with trade and issues like that, and, and we've got record numbers of bankruptcies going on in the farming community, uh, you know, those are things we all know about, but the transition of farms, uh, I was reading something about this the other day about the, you know, we all know the age of the average age of the farmers just continues to grow. And, but if you're not involved in a family that, that has that background, if you're someone trying to get into agriculture, it's almost impossible with the expense and the cost to, to get into it. So to me, that's a big issue is trying to get guys that, that are ladies that maybe weren't in that family operation. Uh, to see the great things about agriculture. It's great for raising your family, um, you know, but, but like I said, it's just hard if you're not involved already somehow. Even if you are, it's hard to, to take that step out there and be on your own and do it yourself. Now, tell me, you, you mentioned uh, several different crops that you all grow. What's your favorite thing to grow? I mean, when, when, when harvest time comes around or planting time comes around, <laughs> what's the one that you're like, yeah, I want to get out there and do that? I'll tell you what, you know, being from eastern Arkansas, everybody would expect me to say rice, and it, it, rice is the most challenging and probably the most rewarding, just for, for putting all the time and effort that you had to put into it to get it out, but uh, here recently, we really got big into growing corn, and, and, and I really like doing it. Uh, it it's, it's something different. Uh, it, it's one of those crops that you better get it right to start with. Uh, at planting times when you're going to basically set your yield, so I like the precision of it. 
Uh, but like I said, you know, growing rice, that's what I grew up on. Uh, getting out there and then trying to manage the water and different things. And we're, we're into trying new uh, efforts to save water. So, so there's a lot of technology right now that's going into that that, that I like messing with. Talk a little bit about, um, since you are in a leadership position and you mentioned one of the critical resources for East Arkansas, which is water, what are some of the things that are happening on your farm or your family, uh, larger families' farms as well that you guys are doing to conserve water? Well, we, we've kind of got an interesting situation on one of our family farms that there's no real groundwater there. Uh, it's very deep, very expensive to pump. Wells are super expensive, almost to the point where you can't put a new deep well down. So, uh, you know, that was where the family, grandparents and great-grandparents had the foresight to, to start building reservoirs uh, to catch groundwater to be able to water that farm. Uh, currently, that the whole 1,500 acres is basically uh, water, basically like groundwater. We don't have any wells on that farm. So, We've had to do a lot of things uh, with land leveling to, to conserve water. We've had to change our crop rotations. That's where the corn came in, where we were mainly rice and beans before. Uh, we were having issues with running out of water late in the season. So our bean yields were being affected because we had already put all our expenses in the rice crop, so we were going to be sure and finish it out. So we've had to do things like land leveling. We've built tailwater recovery ditches to try to reclaim any runoff water that we have and add it back to our reservoir. Uh, you know, we started last year really uh, trying some different soil moisture sensors and, and using uh, new technologies like pipe planter and those type of things to help us pinpoint and maximize our water use uh, to get the best returns. You've gone through a lot of training with Farm Bureau. That's one of the advantages of being involved in Farm Bureau is you get a lot of leadership training. Um, Speak in terms of how, for you, what is the most important thing when you're telling the farming story to folks who you meet that may not know much about farming? Well, just just what we do. I mean, the whole scope of what we do, it's just like I was talking about with people not being uh, able to get in farming. The, the generations are now so far removed from the farm, uh, just... You know that, that they don't understand what we do uh, there's so much so much information or misinformation out there that anybody can put anything anywhere and read it and all of a sudden it becomes a, a sensation of what we're doing maybe what we're not so I try to tell people what the the, the savings things that we're doing the the water savings the the minimizing our nutrient runoff the minimizing of our new putting our nutrients on you know we're trying to to pinpoint everything we're doing we don't want anything running off uh, you know for one thing that costs extra extra money and right now our margins are so tight that that we're trying to conserve everything we can but still make that yield that we need to make so uh, just just tell them the whole story i mean just just and nothing just sitting down and listening to people and asking letting them ask you questions and don't don't be quick to you know think you know everything and, and that they don't let them ask you questions and explain to them and, and uh, i think that'll go a long way well trent dabs has just won the stanley e reed leadership award from arkansas farm bureau at this year's annual convention I'm betting you're going to get a lot of opportunities now to tell that farmer profile, that farmer story that's out there. And Trent, thank you so much and congratulations. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Greg also spoke to Brenda Patton of the Benton County Farm Bureau Women's Leadership Committee. During the convention, Benton County was named the Outstanding County Women's Program Award winner for 2019. This is Greg Patterson and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're talking with Brenda Patton and Brenda. For the second year in a row, Benton County just won the Women's Leadership Committee Award. Tell me what it felt like. Uh, I was surprised, really. I was surprised last year, but I do know that the ladies work so hard and they really deserve this recognition. So tell us about some of what y'all have been doing during this past year. Obviously, your committee is zeroed in on certain areas that they wanted to cover and what were some of those areas? Actually, even though we didn't win in all four categories, which I'm glad that 
they spread it around. You know, I really think that everybody in Arkansas that's a member of a women's committee should receive recognition because they work so hard for no pay and um, they contribute a lot to agriculture. Some of the things that we've done this year, um, especially Ag in the Classroom, we're in the classrooms lots. We especially do a uh, Farm to You program where we will run through a whole elementary school and take them through the stations of beginning with the farm and where the food, how the food gets to their table and then all the way to how it goes through their bodies and you know, and it includes um, even washing your hands and eating properly. So there's lots of details involved in that, but uh, we'll typically run through 400 kids a day in one presentation and one time we had three presentations in consecutive days so it's pretty busy so, time. so you're do, you're doing dozens of these types of programs during the course of the year and you've got all the women in your committee that are involved going through these classrooms and doing it i've attended some of them so i've seen what y'all did how about some of the other things you were involved with um well actually all the ladies have almost specialty areas because they are come from different backgrounds, different types of farms. We have equine education going on. Um, we've been involved with water quality projects. Um, dairy, we have a great dairy program. Several of the women are involved in dairy and they are responsible for a lot of county activities as well as uh, larger area like district activities and um, they, they just work their tails off is all I could say. So, so how about um, in the course of as you prepare for a new year that's coming, coming up, kind of give the listeners an idea of how the committee sits down and decides what they're going to do. Every time we get together, whether it's four of us or the whole committee, we are always talking about more ways that we can get involved. One of our focuses right now is um, expanding more into the high schools because we have established ourselves in the elementary schools, but high school agenda is so demanding that sometimes it's hard to get involved. But we were able to bring a group from Siloam that was one of our county FFA groups and uh, we sponsored them to come down here to get involved and kind of get a taste because we've got to get that next generation prepared. So uh, tell me what some of the comments are that you hear when you're doing an ag in the classroom thing and, and the women come back and say, wow, the kids said this or the kids said that. Are, are, are so many of them just out of touch with what happens on a farm that they really don't know what's going on? At uh, one of the most recent Farm to You presentations, I did have one child say, yes, chocolate milk comes from a, choc from a brown cow. <laughs> and no, it doesn't. All milk is white, you know. But there are lots of things. And then lately, I got to judge a, uh, an FFA speaking contest, and I got to judge in the... Uh, discussion meet and the question was really beneficial to me as well but what the question was what can farm bureau do to make ffa more successful and there were a lot of comments on things that we could do um, there were some things that we already do that they obviously didn't know were available so that gave us a target too and then there were some things that I hadn't even thought of because they brought up that teachers are so stressed and they're complaining about having to write lesson plans and that if we could come up with lesson plans for the FFA that would promote things in agriculture more, that that would be beneficial. So I think that's gonna be one of our goals this coming year. So final question for you, uh, kind of, take this opportunity and, and say some good things about your committee with this second win in a row. We don't have long enough for me to say good things about my committee. They are awesome. They, these ladies sacrifice, they, 
give ideas. They're always willing. I don't care what we bring up. They just are always gung-ho and they're so dedicated to agriculture. And I, I just couldn't ask for a better group of ladies to work with. She is Brenda Patton, and she has chaired the Women's Leadership Committee up in Benton County for the second consecutive year. They have won the Women's Leadership Committee Award from Farm Bureau, and thank you so much for spending time with us today on Arkansas AgCast. Well, thank you, and thanks to Farm Bureau that all of this is possible. Finally, Ken Moore talked to Delaney Howell, host of Iowa Public Television's Market to Market program, and co-host of the Ag News Daily podcast. Howell was the keynote speaker on the first day of convention. I'm Ken Moore, and we're coming to you from Arkansas Farm Bureau's 85th annual convention in Little Rock this week. And right now, I have the pleasure of speaking with one of our keynote speakers. And her name is Delaney Howell, and Delaney is host of Iowa Public Television's Market to Market television program and Delaney you do much more than just host that program so tell us a little bit about you're you're very active in media back in Iowa tell us all about what you're doing back there and how you're uh, communicating to the farmers and ranchers in the state of Iowa well thank you so much for having me first of all so I host market to market which is found in I believe 26 or 27 different states across the U.S. through PBS stations we have agreements with those different stations so I get to do that every week it's a weekly program where I focus really heavily on the news impacting agriculture as well as the commodity markets so we always have a analyst or a broker on every week to discuss where are the commodity markets heading next so that takes up just about a day a week. Uh, so then the rest of my time is split in some other aspects as well. I host a daily podcast. So for all those people out there, I know they're listening to podcasts. So go check out my podcast. It's called Ag News Daily. It's a daily 30 minute program where we cover topics impacting agriculture as well as an interview with somebody related to the agricultural industry. Sometimes it's an interesting producer. Sometimes it's something a little more relevant to what's going on in the agricultural news cycle. But uh, we try to bring the latest news to producers. And then I'm also doing a lot of public speaking, talking to producers, getting my ear to the ground and getting out to Washington DC as well, talking to lobbyists and politicians and those people in USDA that are making the policy impacting us back home. So got my, fing my fingers in a couple different pies and I also freelance for a couple other agricultural media organizations out there like AgriPulse, which is a DC policy bureau, This Week in Agribusiness, which maybe some of your podcast listeners have seen on RFD TV with Max Armstrong and Orion Samuelson. And I also host a daily radio show on Your Ag Network, which is aired in the upper Midwest. So I try to keep busy. <laughs> You are a very busy woman, and I don't know how you get it all in in a week, <laughs> all of those different platforms. But uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your farming background and how you got into ag media. So I grew up on a row crop and feeder cattle and hog operation in southeast Iowa. So if you're looking at a map, we're close to where it curves around near Iowa City area, for those of you that are sports fans, home of the Iowa Hawkeyes. But grew up on a row crop farm and just was involved with agriculture from a young age. But my dad always teases me now. He's like, out of all three of my children, you were the one I thought least likely to go into agriculture. And I liked showing cattle and showing pigs. That was my my niche. I didn't like doing the heavy lifting when I was younger, but in high school my passion for agriculture really exploded. I had a really great FFA teacher who encouraged us to try things outside of the box and just really inspired me to pursue a career in agriculture. And so I actually started college thinking I was going to be an agricultural education teacher and did a practicum course where you go in and, and basically uh, survey a teacher and kind of follow, shadow them around, and I thought, okay, this is not what I want to do. So I started working for my college town's local radio station, and I thought, this is where I belong. I belong in broadcasting, sharing people's stories, and it's just kind of snowballed from there. Fantastic. Uh, now, what is going to be your message for the farmers and ranchers of Arkansas when you uh, speak to them here a little bit later on? What is going to be your message for them? So I get the fun job of making policy exciting and interesting for, for producers and farmers and ranchers sitting in the audience. But the messaging that I really try to shape my theme around is, is food policy. What people are enacting in Washington, D.C., 
is largely related to our food policy. It's driven by consumer tastes and preferences. We're seeing such a shift right now in leadership out in Washington, D.C., where those people that are enacting our policy have no idea what's going on in rural America and, and don't have a true understanding of what farmers and ranchers face every day. So it's, it's largely our food policy is governed by those people. And so it's, a, it's not all bad. There is some bright spots such as our global population and changing consumer tastes and preferences. So there are some bright spots, but it's largely driven by those people out there in Washington, D.C. So it's important to make sure and share your story with those people if you get the chance. Well, we try to educate, and, and Farm Bureau does, American Farm Bureau, all many state farm bureaus do to educate our uh, farm and ranch leaders to become better ag communicators, to tell their own stories. That's our mission. And I know that's your mission. Uh, you got to tell your own story and introduce people to what you're doing and, and so that they put that trust in the farmer or rancher who's producing their food. Absolutely. It is so important. We actually just had somebody message us on Instagram the other day on our Ag News Daily profile it, who was a very extreme veganist. I looked through, through their profile. It was a little intimidating, to be honest. And they reached out asking if they could be a guest on our podcast. And so we're still deciding, is that the right step for us? I mean, it, you enter so many new barriers, perhaps, by speaking with those people. But at the same time, it's like, I, this is what I preach. So I feel like in practice, I need to reach out back to this person and communicate with them. But it's just, it's sad I think that we're scared to interact with those people because we don't know how they're going to react we don't know what they're going to do with our words and turn them or twist them around and make us look like the bad guy when in reality like all the producers and farmers that I talk to I feel like they really have the best interest of their animals and their ground at heart. We like to say farmers and ranchers are the nation's best environmentalists caretakers of the soil and land and they certainly are the best animal welfare. They care for the livestock that they raise. Uh, they're not inhumane at all. And yet uh, that message can be twisted around, like you said, and people just sometimes have to see it for themselves. And that's why we encourage so many to conduct farm tours, welcome them to your farm so they can see exactly how the livestock are raised and how the crops are grown. Absolutely. I think that's really the easiest way to do it is to invite people out to your operation to shine some light on what you're doing. And, and I talked to so many producers and I'm so impressed with the management practices that so many people are using when it comes to their hog confinement buildings their cattle feedlots, looking at no-till or how they can improve soil health, improving the ground so that it's here for so many generations to come. And I think that's the message that we should be sharing with those consumers that don't have an idea about agriculture. And then secondly, this has always bothered me, but sometimes it feels like in agriculture, it's us versus the other half of agriculture. Maybe we're doing things very conventionally and traditionally, and there's some farmers that are doing things with organic farming, or they're looking outside of the box and doing things that are ooh, scary and new. And, and so it's like when we clash with our other counterparts within agriculture, that makes it so much harder to stand united and share our story as a whole, collective whole, with the consumers out there. Well, agriculture continually evolves. Agricultural production continually, continually evolves. Uh, and now, back in the day, it was all conventional for the most part. But now, because of the advent and popularity of organic crop production, and especially when it comes to produce, uh, vegetables, fruits, things of that nature, uh, you know, organic farming is being grown. It's a little more expensive to buy those products, but at least it gives consumers a choice to, uh, you know, uh, choose what type of produce and food products they want to purchase and consume. Don't you agree? So we have to learn how to live together and get along together. Absolutely. And if the consumer wants to pay more for an organic or a non-GMO product, grow it, sell it. I mean, we still know that there are people that appreciate just the traditional products. They don't have a problem with GMOs or non-organic products. But if a consumer is willing to pay a premium and it works for your operation, why not take advantage of that premium that's being built into the marketplace? And science should not be a scary thing, should it? Uh, when we talk about biotechnology or other types of new technology that allows farmers to become more efficient and uh, to, you know, reduce the amount of chemicals and such that they uh, have to apply to their crops. 
Yeah, and I think that for consumers, the the biggest challenge is fear. Fear causes ignorance and causes them to be scared of a product that they don't understand. And to be quite honest, there are some technology like CRISPR and some gene editing technology that I don't fully understand, and I'm not a scientist. And so I think it's important to figure out the messaging. So if you don't understand it, then a consumer is definitely not going to understand it. So you have to put it in a term or a way that they understand, that you both understand, and that you can collaborate on or discuss openly. Well, Delaney, just kind of wrapping this up, uh, what's your message? What do you see the future of ag media becoming with the advent of social media? Uh, farmers and ranchers can listen to your podcast, can listen to ours while they're harvesting the crop in their combine. You know, it's a whole new day in that regard. But uh, how do you see the future evolving? Well, they usually say as a rule of thumb that agriculture media is a little bit slower than mainstream media. So you look at what the other outlets are doing, the CNNs, the Fox News, those people are kind of leading the way for agriculture. But the other thing is agriculture is so different because we still have so many areas of the U.S. that don't have good broadband or internet access. So for agriculture, it's much different than the, the media landscape is changing much differently than it is for mainstream media. So I think it's just however media, ag media can meet the farmer where they are. I think that's the future of ag media. Well, Delaney, thank you for coming to Arkansas, coming to Little Rock and speaking at our annual convention. It's been great meeting you and visiting with you for these past few minutes and keep telling that farm story. Thank you so much, Ken, for having me. Been speaking with Delaney Howell, one of the keynote speakers at Arkansas Farm Bureau's 85th annual convention on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Thank you for joining us for another edition of Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next Thursday with more news and views on Arkansas agriculture.